Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors, our ongoing conversation about how we can reimagine the Canadian economy in this time of unprecedented change. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. We're now a few months into the pandemic, and one of the quiet outcomes may be the biggest experiment ever undertaken in education. Almost overnight, more than 1 billion students and pretty much every school on the planet has had to go online. And they may never go back, at least not to where they were. For universities, it's particularly challenging as they were already under attack by budget cutters, demographic shifts, and a society of skeptics. There's a bit of irony there. Universities were originally created to protect people, the elite really, from the barbarians at their gates. They had walls and cloisters and saw themselves as the educational equivalent of monasteries. Now in 2020, they're anything but, as the world has broken down every last remaining wall through technology, social upheaval, and now a pandemic. And the best universities are seizing on this crisis to develop a new model of learning that's better for the student, the professor, and the society that depends on them. As we've talked about on Disruptors for years, the single biggest engine of innovation in any country is post-secondary education. So as universities struggle through the lockdown and the shift to online learning, we all need them to get it right. We at RBC have been pushing new approaches to higher education for years through our Humans Wanted research project and our $500 million future launch initiative. We're passionate about all education, but especially universities and colleges. A few months before the pandemic hit, I was on the campus of the University of Guelph, talking with students and faculty about ways to accelerate their innovative approach to education. We agreed a campus could never go entirely online. There really is something valuable about place, be it the classroom or campus, or the clubs and teams that enhance everyone's education and make us better humans. But we also agreed the university would have to move faster through the digital revolution to harness the power of data, of personalization, of mass reach. In a way, you could say universities now have to be always on, online, on campus, and on demand. I learned that a long time ago from John Baker, the amazing Waterloo innovator and founder of D2L, which used to be called Desire to Learn. John's built a global company and is passionate about the purpose and power of education. We've had him on Disruptors before, and I wanted to have him back to talk about the mass disruption we're now seeing to education. We'll also hear from a range of experts and share insights from a new research report by RBC on what the pandemic is doing to education. John, it feels like we've been talking about the transformation of education for a long, long time. You've been at the forefront of it in Canada, and now we are two months into this mass experiment in online education. Curious, first of all, what you think we've learned so far? On one hand, the shift to fully online learning has been a real shock to some that were caught unprepared for this type of an event. On the other hand, we've got a number of clients that have been ready and have actually seen this as an opportunity to accelerate growth. The theme that you know underlines everything that we've seen as we've worked with our clients around the world is that well, we really should be celebrating the teachers, the educators, those that are on the front lines of providing education continuity. You know, this is not easy for them to be you know ripped out of the classroom put into teaching fully online. And some were never given the tools, if you will, to be successful as they've made that transition. So I think we should recognize uh, first and foremost, the faculty, the teachers as the heroes they are, 
for tackling this challenge to the best of their abilities. And I think it's also really important to be clear that what a lot of the learning that's been happening so far has been phrased as remote learning. It's not the same as high quality online learning experiences. But tell us the difference there, because I trip up on that myself, remote learning, distance learning, and online learning. A lot of people were pushed into this new online learning world. And so many of them have been using you know, online meeting technology as a way to take what they were doing in the classroom and just simply put it into a synchronous format online. So that format was never meant to build a high quality learning experience. That's like the equivalent of Zoom. So Zoom learning meetings, other types of synchronous technology, that type of technology might be good for some types of interaction for feedback, but it's certainly not meant to support large scale, fully online learning. It's such an interesting point because technology is rarely about technology only. It's very much dependent on humans. And when online education works well, it's because of the teachers. It's not just the technology. What makes a good teacher in mass online learning? It's a question I ask a lot of teachers. And interestingly, I think it's the combination of people plus the learning platform that really makes a difference in driving better learning outcomes. And at the heart, though, is giving great feedback to students. That coaching, that one-on-one moment is an opportunity for you to spark engagement, to inspire the student to achieve more than they ever dreamed possible, to help give them the right scaffolding, maybe fill in a few missing pieces. And ultimately, that helps those students persist through whatever's thrown in front of them. And we'll see you know, completion rates going up. We'll see educational outcomes improving. I would have thought it would be harder for a teacher to provide feedback or even stay connected with every student at a reasonable level through online platforms. Is it that much tougher than in person? Or, or maybe it's easier if the teacher has the right skills. Well, you hit it right there at the very end there. Teachers have to have the right skills. And for folks that have been doing this for a number of years, they, they definitely have the skills and they're thriving in this type of an environment. Others, it takes time to pick up those new skills. One professor that I've spent a lot of time with over the years is John Smallwood, who teaches English literature. He's 70 years old, uh, runs the Boston Marathon, and what you would normally think of as a traditional great professor, great teacher. And he comments after years of teaching online as uh, the technology has transformed his teaching experience because for the first time he's able to reach every learner. He's able to provide that feedback, that scaffolding, that support to go from one level to the next for each student, something that he never do in the traditional classroom. And I think that's the power of technology is it enables us to do things differently to be able to have a bigger impact on more people. You know, personalized learning is something that Athabasca University, which is Canada's largest online university, says is its focus. I spoke to Neil Fasina, Athabasca's president, who had a terrific way of explaining it. I can appreciate that in the shift that many institutions have made most recently, that's kind of an emergency transition to a technology-mediated classroom. I can see the concern that would be there. The flip side, however, is that when online learning is designed specifically for the engagement, the interaction of an online learner, we can actually create a space that is incredibly personalized, incredibly engaging, and doesn't duplicate, but actually replaces what one might come to see in a, in a place-based classroom. It would be kind of like comparing live theater to a 3D animated movie out of Hollywood. Both of them can be incredibly entertaining, but there's an entirely different way of going about creating those in the background in order to engage the audience. And it would be the same thing said for true online learning. That's a great metaphor and raises one of the challenges in getting educators to think differently 
as they look at adopting digital platforms. John, you've been pushing educators to transform for 20 years now, and here we are in the middle of a pandemic, a crisis. And I've been wondering if this is a kind of big bang moment for education. Yes, with 100% certainty, this is a moment which is going to transform education forever. You know, up until this point, online learning was considered a nice to have. But, you know, after uh, this pandemic, I think all of us need to be well prepared for a future where hybrid learning or online learning could be a big part of the learning experience. Why does there need to be a classroom? There doesn't. For many of our clients, they're fully online today. I think you still have a number of folks that want to still you know, have the social aspects of a traditional uh, educational environment. And I, and I do think uh, there will still be a huge demand for that. Education is more than just simply the learning that happens in the classroom. There's a huge social element attached to attending a university or college. And those are going to be a, certainly a big part of the future as well. I don't think that those things are going to go away. Sophie Demour is rector at Laval University in Quebec City, and many see it as the leader in both online and on-campus education. Before the pandemic, Laval was offering a thousand classes and a hundred programs online. Sophie says the challenge now is to find new ways to encourage that kind of socialization, even as learning becomes entirely remote. The pandemic is bringing another level of experience and the students, they like to be on campus. And it's part of their self-development to interact, to be together, to define together with these exchange who they are and who they want to be. Just online is a bit hard for them. And we're trying to find other ways to keep the socialization process happening. What I've announced is that we're going to work with our students uh, during the summer to figure out how to do that. Obviously, my generation and most of the professors do not have the full knowledge and understanding of how the student generation use social media and different platforms to interact. So we need to do that with them and to organize ourselves to take the best out of it. But we're thinking of pairing students that have been on campus with new ones through platform, uh, different social events that are for student, by student, but through the web, we're thinking of different calls for a new project that they can do together that are not necessarily credit-based or curriculum-based, but so different perspective of their student life. So there's the social aspect, and the learning experience for students. But so much of that is made possible by incorporating the right kinds of technologies. A lot of people may think of online learning as just a YouTube channel and may not understand the software complexities that go into all that universities and colleges are trying to develop. Online learning is not just simply watching a video or participating in a virtual classroom or an online meeting, if you will. There's a lot of self-directed learning that occurs, going through different interactive experiences. Video is certainly part of it. Online discussions, doing assignments, all these experiences, if you will, have an online component now. But we're now going through a transformation of that experience to a much more optimized and enjoyable experience for those students. So if you can imagine things like a mastery-based model of learning, where you can quickly demonstrate uh, the skills that you have already. So you can progress forward through your degree or through your program faster. So if you can imagine 
a doctor or a nurse or an engineer, as they graduate uh, today, instead of just simply having passed the courses, be able to be a graduate, they've demonstrated the level of mastery that would welcome them into an engineering firm or welcome them into an operating room. They've got those skills in an abundance, if you will. Does that blow up the traditional education model, which is still in many ways built around the agrarian calendar, September to planting season in the spring and kind of five days a week? It can, and it will. Right now, what a lot of our clients have done, a hybrid approach where they work this mastery-based model into the existing program, but others are adapting so that uh, you could, for example, complete a degree now in as little as six months. And so, you know, why are we progressing students based upon seat time? We should be progressing students based upon their demonstration of mastery of the outcomes that are part of the program. A lot of the debate so far around online learning seems to have come from an institutional perspective, how challenging this is for a typical university or college and the pain of disruption. And we don't seem to be hearing as much about the student experience. What do we need to understand about the student experience that perhaps we're missing when we look at this kind of transformation? From my vantage point, it's the uh, one-on-one time that you're going to have with the faculty member It's the peer-to-peer interactions on projects that you're going to be working on together for discovering new ideas, working on really challenging problems, making sure that you build a learning environment that's going to reflect what that experience is going to be as they get into the workforce is also a big component here too. It's not a situation where you walk out into the workforce and someone's going to sit there and give you a lecture on how to do everything in your job. That self-directed nature of the learning experience has to be embedded as well too, so that people take more responsibility and more control of their learning so that they can you know, be ready for what comes next. It's interesting that you mentioned the value of peer-to-peer learning, and traditionalists argue that's the one of the values of the classroom and campus because students get to hang out with students and learn from each other. That's just as feasible in the online universe. It's just a different mindset. Do you think it's that simple that peer-to-peer can be as powerful online as it is in person? Absolutely. There's always a human element to this. And in many cases, especially as you get into grad school, you're one of very few folks that are going through that particular program or that particular offering, if you will. And so with online, all of a sudden you open your your world up, if you will, to people from all over the world that can be part of that program, part of that experience. And so you should, you know, in theory, be able to create an even richer environment for folks to get together and collaborate. You talked about the ability as well to progress through an education, constantly testing yourself. And I can see how that would work in applied programs, engineering, for instance, or math. But I wonder how that sort of online approach works in the humanities. I think it's just as important in the humanities. You know, there's no reason why you can't describe this in terms of uh, graduate attributes or, or research skills, creative writing, empathy. It doesn't have to just be, you know, hard facts or skills, if you will, that you would pick up in a traditional engineering discipline. And in those particular areas, what you're developing is largely a portfolio of work that demonstrates your ability to to think creatively, to problem solve, to demonstrate empathy, to you know think critically of key problems, do a lit review. Whatever you would normally go through is uh, can certainly be described in ways that uh, are more than just simply I took this course or I took that particular program. We'll see what the fall brings. But already a good number of universities and colleges have indicated or declared that they will be mostly online for at least the fall term. What at this stage would you say educators and leaders of institutions need to fundamentally come to grips with 
over the next three months so they don't blow it going into this unique fall term. We put in a policy brief uh, recently for our clients talking about how the future of learning for this fall is going to be hybrid, meaning those that are willing to invite students back to campus are probably going to have to be ready and able to support students in multiple different phases at the same time, where some of their students will be in the class, some of them will be online. In all of these cases, whether it's hybrid or fully online, the fully online piece is the, is the most important component because that's what's going to enable them to support any of the teaching methodologies for the fall. And so as they do that, we need to provide both the students and the faculty new skills to help them understand how to be ready for that new future, if you will. And then, you know, for students, they're going to need to learn how to be more self-directed. They're going to need to pick up a few new skills themselves. You may still see some universities try to bring students back. You know, so there they'll be looking at contact tracing. They'll be looking at testing of students. They'll be making sure as they, you know, go into lab environments, they're they're using PPE. Uh, And that'll be a form of experiential learning in itself. RBC has published a report about how the COVID crisis can be a catalyst for transforming post-secondary education whether it's on campus, online, or on demand. Pre-crisis, half of Canadian higher education institutions said they lacked the resources or expertise to develop online learning. And yet here they are, finding ways to pivot. Andrew Shrum is the lead researcher and author of the report, and he talked to me about some of the opportunities ahead. I guess for me, when I took on this report, the biggest finding for me was that we've been talking about online education for 20 years. But what the crisis has exposed is that ed tech and educators have not been working in alignment. For the last 10 years, we've seen a 14x growth in ed tech investment, but adoption rates remain pretty modest at Canadian academic institutions. Only about 16% of university and 12% of college learners, mainly online. I think the biggest takeaway there is that universities and colleges need to offer something different to students this coming year. We need to be looking at ways of integrating micro-credentials, experiential learning, in a way that they can get credit for that and they have a passport to education across all forms of online and on-campus learning. John, some of these ideas have been floated before, but they've not gained much traction. You work with institutions, colleges and universities and school systems around the world. What defines the best ones that are most innovative in this new realm? When I look at the ones that are thriving in this environment, it's ones that were ready uh, for fully online. It's the ones that are really investing in their faculty, communicating really well in terms of what's happening, what's changing. In the online world, it's not just simply putting up videos or lectures or running a meeting. It's really thinking about how to use that medium differently. You know, I think uh, it was Marshall McLuhan that said uh, something to the effect of, you know, our anxiety of today is largely in part to trying to use yesterday's tools and yesterday's concepts to to tackle today's problems. But that feels like what we have today. We're, We're trying to use you know, in many cases, the wrong tools or trying to use the wrong concepts to educate uh, students today. And we need to adapt. We need to change. But one of the concerns that you often hear cited in this transformation is the teacher, especially the faculty, that they're reluctant. Uh, Many of them are decades uh, out of school themselves, and they just want to continue to be sage on the stage to get up at the podium and give the same lecture that they've been given for 10 years. You're on the front lines of this. How reasonable a criticism is that of teachers and faculty members globally? I keep coming back to, we can't expect teachers to cobble this together using their own toolbox, right? It's almost like we're asking the teacher to build their classroom brick by brick online using whatever 
you know, patchwork of tools they could find online. We owe it to the teachers to be able to equip them with the right resources, the right training, the right supports to make sure that they can make that pivot and be successful with it. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us uh, to really rally around addressing those issues. It's not just on the shoulders of the faculty members, if you will. Guelph University is another Canadian institution that has prioritized online learning. They've been at it for more than 15 years now and have done some incredible work, including experimenting with industry partners to find what works, especially given the specialized nature of many of Guelph's programs. Charlotte Yates, Guelph's provost, said the same thing, that supporting faculty is a huge part of the success formula. I think what faculty need is they need the kind of technological supports, people supports. If you want a rich experience, you need to figure out how do I make this a richer experience? So you need expertise, you need access to the technology. I think also some faculty and some material is really almost inimical to online learning. If you think about studio art, how would you teach studio art without some kind of face-to-face? -face? One of the things that I think is a mistake in perception of online learning is that somehow it's cheaper because it's mass and good, high-quality, digitally rich learning uh, and courses require an incredible amount of time and care and expertise. And that's where uh, I think I've seen our faculty spend an enormous amount of time supporting our transition uh, from face-to-face -face and fairly rapidly to an online alternative delivery. John, I think we were together at University of Waterloo, I want to say five or six years ago for a conversation about the future of education. And it was generally agreed, maybe not by some of the professors in the room, but it was generally agreed that post-secondary education was among the last to transform in the digital revolution. Why do you figure it's taken so long for especially universities to change, that it's, and it's frankly taken a pandemic to create this sense of urgency? I think there's two things here. One is adapting to new tools, new technologies is not easy. And you, we need to free up time for the faculties to embrace this type of technology, experiment with it, try it, learn what works, and adapt from what they were doing traditionally in the classroom to this new online format. But I also think there's still a huge value attached you know, to a university or college education that goes well beyond the traditional classroom. It's about experiential learning. It's about you know social. It's about so many other things around exploring the community, learning from a diverse set of perspectives from so many other folks. And coming together on campus is a great way to do that. So I think uh, a lot of folks have embraced that strength of the university, maybe not even realizing it was a strength, if you will. That's held us back from really embracing new technologies that allow us to pivot, if you will, to fully online and to be able to reach more students in a better way. Arguably, the math of the platform economy is that price eventually moves towards zero as scale moves towards infinity, which seems extreme, but that's how search and e-commerce operate. Can the same math be applied to education? Well, this goes back to, uh, you know, a really important fundamental question around, you know, what is the education? And if the education is simply consuming the educational resources and not producing and getting feedback, then yeah, I would agree that that argument is there. 
But if you believe that education is more than that, and it's about producing, and it's about uh, getting great feedback from experts in the field or great professors or great teachers, then that is hard to scale. It's not impossible to scale some feedback through technology. You know, we have things like virtual tutors or virtual agents, if you will, that we've built in the platform that can automate feedback based upon certain triggers. But what we're seeing is, you know, the, the value of the teacher, the value of the human in this equation is still, still great and probably will grow uh, with time as you democratize access to the actual educational resources, if you will. You've no doubt heard Alex Usher, the great education consultant and critic, to give his views on how there needs to be more opportunity for the great educators to scale, to cross boundaries. If you know Waterloo is the best program in the country at Engineering 101, let Waterloo offer that to the country and maybe Queen's specializes in English 101 and so so on. So find your specialization and scale. Oh, the world needs us to do this, John. We're short 69 million educators globally. Today, we're sitting here in a world where 1.6 billion school kids still are shut out of schools. Let's turn to that Canadian opportunity because this podcast is all about how we can build a better, stronger, more resilient Canadian economy for the 2020s and 2030s. And education has to be at the foundation of that. It's not only critical to developing a well-educated and balanced nation and communities that can lead us forward, but it's a terrific economic driver. It's a big exporter in the knowledge-based world. As we think of this crisis, maybe as an opportunity for educators, how does Canada seize the moment? Keep in mind, education in Canada has largely been a provincial mandate and focused on our individual communities. And I think we've got to widen that perspective because I think the institutions here can certainly provide a very high quality education, world-class education on a global scale. So I think it is a golden opportunity for the country to leverage uh, one of our strengths, one of our strong exports, and really start to scale this out on a global basis. Education, of course, is not just about preparing the next generation. We talk a lot about lifelong learning and that's going to be an even bigger challenge, unfortunately, with all the unemployment that's being created and the economy that's likely fairly different when it revs up again. We'll probably all need different skills and it's going to extend well beyond our ability to navigate Zoom. What do you think our colleges and universities, as well as governments that fund them, need to be thinking about to reposition our education system to help the entire population in a post-pandemic world? I think we need to change the mission of the university and colleges from serving the students that they have on campus today to reaching every learner in every community with every ability, if you will, to be able to maximize the impact on our country. You know, if you look at the staggering number of uh, people that are out of uh, work today in terms of sitting on the sidelines waiting to come back into the, to the workforce, that upskilling effort is going to be tremendous, unprecedented. I don't think Canadians fully appreciate how competitive the global landscape is in post-secondary education. A lot of great universities emerging all over the place, but at the same time, deeply, deeply challenged. You know, you hear talk of universities going bankrupt in the UK or running out of money in the US. So we're going to see a lot of the competition, we're already seeing it, heavily disrupted. What do you figure we need to change in terms of mindset to take that leap in the league tables? We've struggled with uh, looking for a catalyst for change. We have that catalyst right now. What we need to do is embrace it and put in place the right tooling, the right infrastructure, the right vision 
to take this crisis that we're going through right now and turn it into an opportunity for us to build the universities that we want for the future. And you're right, John, like this is our single biggest and best opportunity for us to climb the rankings, to provide a better educational experience, because as many universities around the world struggle uh, with this transition, you know, it's how do we come together as a sector, work together as a sector, instead of trying to think about things as individual silos, if you will, or, or individual discipline or individual university, how do we actually start to work together to build each other up, to have strength, to be able to compete on a global basis? If we're lucky enough to have this conversation again in a year, what's the one thing you hope the country will have done? Establish education as an essential service. When we think about infrastructure today, we often think about infrastructure as uh, roads or highways or railroads, but the infrastructure of the future is digital. Offers eating the world, if you will, is a famous line. It's true. And the sooner that we build out the right digital infrastructure, and establish education as an essential service, one that can be depended on, you know, during snowstorms, trade wars, cybersecurity threats, doesn't stop, it's going to enable our economy to thrive and to be nimble and pivot from one skill to the next skill. So to me, if we can do one thing through all of this is, is to build that infrastructure, to establish education as an essential service, and to make sure that we have that resiliency built into the system. John, I always learn something when I get to talk to you, and I've learned a ton today. Thank you so much for being part of RBC Disruptors. You're welcome, John. And thank you for doing the incredible work that you're doing. It's so important. It matters even more today than ever before. Thank you. After talking with John, I feel really excited about the prospects for both higher education and online learning. I'd say there were five key takeaways from our conversation. Number one, support teachers. We need to help them through this epic transformation. Many aren't equipped were supported for this brave new world. They need time to develop a whole new skill set and gain the tools to turn online teaching into something magical. Number two, personalize the student experience. UX or user experience is key to all digital innovation. Same goes for online education. This isn't about videotaping lectures. It's not about Zoom. It's about creating a unique interaction between teacher and student and between students and using feedback loops, including data, to constantly improve. Number three, think about equity. We shouldn't assume all students have the same access to computers, broadband, and other online tools. Same goes for teachers. Working from home is testing all of us in new ways. Teaching from home and studying from home can be just as challenging. Number four, focus on skills. We're shifting from a credential-based economy to a skills-based economy and human skills are at their core. Coming out of the pandemic, one of those human skills, resilience, will be more valuable than ever. And students are developing resilience through online learning, along with collaboration, communication, and complex problem solving. Number five, always on. The future of education will be online, on campus, and on demand. Of course, there are social aspects of a traditional education that are still valued and in demand. And the institutions that will thrive will be the ones that figure out how to blend technology and socialization and evolve students in the process. You've been listening to RBC Disruptors, our ongoing conversation about innovation and how we can reimagine the Canadian economy in this time of unprecedented change. Disruptors is presented by the RBC Thought Leadership Group, 
And today's episode was produced by Quill and Origins Media House. We'd love to hear where you'd like to take the conversation in future episodes. Until next time, I'm John Stackhouse, and this is RBC Disruptors.